Hello and welcome to the UC Architects. This is episode 40, recorded Sunday, July 6th, 2014. I'm your host, Link MVP Pat Richard. On today's show, we'll be talking, uh, as ever, about what's hot in the UC uh, space, bringing you the latest news, and uh, but first, a little bit of business. This UC Architects episode is sponsored by Instant Technologies, expert in enterprise click-to-chat and e-discovery solutions. Instant Technology announces Instant Chime for Microsoft Link. Transform your service desk with Chime and move your support operations from endangered species to wise enterprise. Start your Chime trial at www.adchime.com and join the conversation on on Twitter at Team Instant. So today I am uh, pleased to say that uh, I am joined by my co-hosts Andrew Price, John Cook, Michelle DeRoy, Michael Van Horenbeek, Dave Stork, and Stelle Hansen. And of course, as I tweeted earlier in the week, we have a special guest today, Mr. Tony Redmond, or my longtime uh, buddy from the Exchange MVP community. Tony, how are you? Uh, good to be with you, Pat. It's nice to have finally reached the esteemed height of uh, participation in one of these broadcasts. Well, you've been on. You were at the one at, at uh, Mech, right? Uh, I was, no, I was at the one at Connections. But oh, Connections. They, they, they had to ask me a lot at Connections because I was running the exchange track there, so that doesn't really count, you know. So <laughs> It's taken you guys 40 episodes, for God's sake. I mean, you've had everybody. You've had goats, <laughs> sheep, bats, wombats. Hey, anybody Tony. and everybody on before me it's just dreadful we just <laughs> wanted to make sure we had it good and all settled down and and all the bells and whistles working and everything before we had such an esteemed colleague such as yourself on here so what you're really saying is it took you 39 episodes to rehearse your stuff before you're good enough to, to have me on that's really good huh? yeah yeah we're, we're a little slow uh, it, that's true especially <laughs> van horenbeek <laughs> so, uh, Tony, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, what do I do? Uh, I write for Windows IT Pro, where I'm a senior contributing editor. I write uh, the Exchange on, on Washed Blog, which covers anything to do with Office 365, Exchange on-prem, or pretty well anything else that uh, comes to mind. And most of the time, it's pretty nothing that comes to mind, i got to say. But uh, there you go. They, they let me do that stuff. And uh, for the rest of the time, I've... Uh, I help companies when they want help. I guess I'd say that. Very good. And you've been an exchange MVP forever. I've been it for a while. I, I try not to use forever. That that kind of brings me back <laughs> to the Stone Age. But yes, I was working with email when we were still doing it on Stone tablets. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I, I used to have the the uh, the Exchange Journal, the Green Binder journals. I remember those articles well. Oh, those, the, yeah, the, that, that was the monthly newsletter. Yep. That was yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, fond memories of writing many columns for those those guys in hotel rooms around the world, but um, long gone now, I think. Well, welcome. We're we're glad that uh, we finally got a schedule where you could uh, join us. Yeah, yeah sure. on, on a Sunday evening. I mean, do you guys not not do stuff in the middle of the week or anything like that? No. I just sit around. Ah, okay. <laughs> it just seems to work out for everyone's schedule. Uh, that, uh, the weekend seems to work out best. Yeah. I suppose the good thing is there's no soccer on today. Yeah. Well, I'm in the U.S., so I don't really care. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many fair weather soccer, like, you know, millions of extra soccer fans. There wasn't, you know, six months ago all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, you were all great. You were all good while you were in the competition. Now you've gone to do something else, like right. synchronized swimming or something where you might actually win, huh? Well, we're getting close to football, our football season, so that, that'll, that'll, <laughs> everyone's pretty much ready for that. Good. Well, welcome. 
And uh, top stories. Um, finally, our own Dave Stork has been awarded the MVP award, and he Ooh. makes number 13 out of the 15 of us that is a, an MVP. So, Dave, congrats on becoming an exchange MVP. How does it feel to finally get that? Uh, well, very excited. It felt very good. It was uh, I was a bit nervous on the day itself, but when that mail fi- finally came uh, came into my mailbox, I was, uh, uh, yeah, excited, uh, to say the least. Still hasn't landed really yet, so still have to, to get used to it. Well, you know, Tony requires new exchange MVPs to buy him a bottle of wine at the MVP Summit, so <laughs> I, I'm just letting you know there okay. are expectations. Actually, no, it's gone up since you were around, Pat. It's now a bottle of champagne. Oh, We've raised our standards, you know? Well, you know, you can get that stuff for like five bucks at 7-Eleven, so. Yeah, the stuff that you drink, but not the stuff I drink, <laughs> so, so that's champagne, and that's, uh, I think uh, somebody said I had to, to do some push-ups. So, push-ups. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait till we bring the cheerleader outfit you have to wear. <laughs> so I'm expecting a really interesting, um, how do you call that? A, 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 uh, a hazing? Hazing, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, we, we like to think of it as an introduction to the group. All right, yeah. A memorable introduction. Oh, well, some Argentinians don't like it, but that's about That's not important right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, congrats, Dave. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. You uh, definitely uh, earned it. Uh, next up uh, for uh, Tom, who couldn't be with us today because uh, some fabulous new news for Tom and his girlfriend. Uh, Essie Isabella Arbuthnot was born uh, a few days ago, and mom and baby are doing fine. So uh, Tom's uh, tending to being a, a new dad. So congrats to Tom. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so let's head into some exchange topics here. Um, Dave, we'll, we'll throw you in the fire here first. So uh, right. you, you had submitted this uh, exchange and antivirus exclusions. Uh, what's going on with this article? Well, it's, it's an article by Roderick Milner from uh, Microsoft. It's a follow-up article on, um, well, basically exchange and antivirus exclusions. And um, and. The, the reason that I submitted it is because that I still see a lot of implementations uh, with Exchange and an uh, on-access file scanner, which is then left at the default settings without any exclusions uh, or whatever. And I think that that's, uh, uh, well, you're, you're putting your Exchange environment at risk if you don't exclude specific files, processes, and folders or even mount points, for instance. And this article, well, it goes into depth about how to, on what things you have to watch out for. For instance, the mount points is some some issue that that uh, some antivirus pr- programs have to, you have to take special care with. And uh, well, it's not an article on how to configure the software itself, but it does refer to um, the necessary. Uh, exclusions in well Exchange 2003. If you're still running that, I hope not. But uh, but also uh, well up to Exchange 2013 uh, with directory exclusions, uh, process exclusions, and uh, even um, file name ex- extension exclusions. And uh, both articles and all referenced articles in it should be um, mandatory reading. Uh, material uh, when you implement an antivirus uh, solution on your Exchange server. Well, that's at least my opinion. So, are you saying we should not scan the M drive? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
well, because Exchange, was it still there in 2003? No, it was 2000, only 2000, I think. But yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's even more you don't have, uh, want to scan. So definitely uh, look up that article and um, um, and make the necessary changes if you hadn't already. Good, and we'll we'll definitely have a link to that on the summary page. And I, you know, to add to that story that Dave just that Dave just told, I think it's a very good reminder. Um, you know, putting it out there because everyone, especially you know, we take this for granted and we're like yeah sure uh, some things need to be need to be excluded from scanning but truth is that everywhere or almost everywhere I go um, you know revise or audit some uh, implementations uh, these are top issues that you know you come around and you see uh, you know the the antivirus just scanning databases all the exchange files causing issues all the time so it's it's great that finally you know someone put it out there again uh, more recently than you know the older articles and telling everyone hey it's still something that you need to be aware of. So good. Yeah, good yeah, and, and and to be clear, this is specifically on uh, regarding um, uh, the virus scanners, just what you uh, install on most uh, servers, not specific exchange scanning um, uh, software. So if you uh, only use the on-access file scanning, this is the, the the articles that you really have to read. Okay. Good. Yeah, strange things can happen if you don't get those right. Uh, next up, um, alternate login IDs for Office 365. Michael, you had a chance to take a look into this. What's uh, what's new with that? Yeah, so it's it's not that new. I mean, uh, it's been available for for a few months now. I think ever since um, uh, Windows Server 2012 R2. But it was only until a few weeks ago that it got documented on TechNet um, poorly, for that matter. Um, and, and the thing is that um, it, it is really an interesting thing because uh, it's it's targeted to larger environments, I'd say, where a company is uh, able to federate uh, domains in Office 365, but instead of having to use you know a federated domain in their user principal name, they could now theoretically use a, you know just about any attribute on their user object on premises. So before, uh, or if you don't use alternate login ID, you're you're required to use an internet routable user principal name if you're going to use ADFS, so that you know when, whenever you t- attempt to log in into Office 365, it gets redirected to your ADFS server. Um, but some companies were unable to do that, um, especially you know if there is a, an application internally which uses your UPN, but it's hard coded, so it's poorly you know written in the past, and you cannot change the UPNs, which might not be internet writable, then before alternate login ID, you were in deep trouble because you couldn't easily do anything of ADFS. Now you can. The only problem that I have with the alternate login ID is that it's, as I said, it's it's relatively poorly documented. That's one thing, so I'm, I'm very grateful for Steve to take on the job and write some articles about it. Um, and secondly, the thing is that it's fairly easy to implement on ADFS. Um, it's just doing you know a few clicks and you're done with it. However, um, the, the, the the little part, and this is what I, uh, why I'm really you know a little bit pissed about um, at Microsoft is the article they mentioned about the alternate login ID. They just tell, hey, this is super easy to set up, and there is that one you know type eight font size. Um, thingy that mentions, oh, and by the way, you need to modify Dersync too. Um, and it's mainly that point which 
kind of you know gives me the creeps because uh, you can mess up a lot of things in Versync, um, and until the new Azure AD Sync is available, I guess somewhere uh, by the end of the year, um, things are not going to get easier. And I'd rather have you know clients that don't know really what they're doing to stay out of there. And you know right now the the guidance on that is 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 not you know up to par, which could cause some issues. And I've seen uh, one case earlier this week at a customer where. Know that nearly cost major damage. So, but it's it's a good solution. So. Hmm. Good. Yeah. Thanks to Steve for for that article, and it's uh it's on Tech Target. We'll get a link up to that as well. And uh, speaking of Office 365, uh, if you're into Exchange or Link and in uh, connected to a North American data center, you probably are aware that there was uh, some outages recently. And and Tony, have you? Uh, had to deal with this uh, with some of your customers? No, well, it didn't affect me at all because I use uh, a European data center. And um, speaking about the exchange uh, outage, which I I wrote about last uh, Thursday uh, on Exchange Unwashed, it seems to be that they just had a, a particular issue with the way that they provide directory services to uh, incoming authentication. I mean, this this is a problem that's been in... in uh, Email for uh, for years and years and years. We've ever since we've we've put email systems on the internet. We've had bastion servers where the incoming email stream has to be examined, validated, and authenticated. And it seems like what happened here is that they're channeling email through EOP, um, Exchange Online Protection. Part of that channeling is that it has to be authenticated to make sure that it's going to be directed to an Office 365 domain. And bang, once your directory services fail for some reason or fail to keep up with the uh, volume of authentication requests, you have a problem. And that's where the problem occurred. And it seemed like uh, it, it took Microsoft a while to figure out what was happening. It took them uh, a while to uh, come up with uh, a solution. And uh, then once they got the, uh, the volume back online to allow for authentications uh, to resume at the required rate, then the mail queues cleared. And, and uh, again, I don't blame Microsoft. This is a problem that's been around for a while. You could criticize them a little bit by saying, well, you know, it took them a long time. It was a seven-hour outage. It was an outage that was in the middle of the working day, so it's hugely high profile. Uh, however, it was restricted to uh, one geographic area and only part of that geographic area. And as they've admitted, yep, we, we've got a problem here. Uh, the uh, authentication failure expo exposed some flaws in our systems, and we'll just have to harden it up. So. Well, hopefully this is a one-off event, and uh, it'll be up to Microsoft now to harden their 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 servers and make sure that capacity is can be kept online to handle the inbound traffic. Yeah, I, I I can say that you know for those of us at Modality, we were impacted by that because we recently migrated to Office 365, and uh, we're on a, a North American data center. So, um, you know, not that we use email a, a ton, you know, primarily a, a being a link shop, but uh, we were definitely impacted at, uh, by it. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of chuckle, well, ha, 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 that's that's exchange. Well, then the very next day, uh, Link Online had an outage. I think it was the day before, Pat. I think it was Monday, Tuesday, where it was the uh, 
was the sequence. Monday was link, Tuesday was uh, exchange, and then Wednesday SharePoint for some reason kept on running. I, I, it's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get yes. the, we got bit by the exchange or the link piece too. Well, well, SharePoint is strange. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. SharePoint is just a website, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, just an uh, Office uh, web app server. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But again, you know, when people criticize cloud services for these type of outages, I, th I think it's important to ask, ask the question, would an on-premises deployment have done any better? And the only thing that I can go back to is a particular situation that I described in the blog where uh, with Exchange 2007, when things were pretty new about the whole CAS environment and, and, and that kind of thing, we, we got ourselves in a terrible mess when we got to a particular load and suddenly found that uh, authentications, uh, the domain controllers, the Windows domain controllers, could just handle the authentications for inbound connections. And exactly the same type of symptoms that Microsoft had, uh, we experienced big time. And it took us, I think we were down our suffering for 12 days. And it took something like seven Microsoft engineers on site with, jeez, uh, we even had a Microsoft vice president on site at, 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 at the time to try and make this all work because it was a very high profile uh, project. So, you know, these things happen. Let's just happen. hope that they won't happen again. Yeah, well, Defin definitely a learning experience, I'm sure, for them. It, you bet. It definitely, it definitely is because um, I had one particular customer that had issues or that was impacted by the Exchange Online uh, protection issue uh, that Tony just talked about. And, um, you know, they were okay with the fact that things break. And we, you know, as Tony just explained, things just break once in a while, even at Microsoft. And uh, it's a good thing that they should have or they do have the knowledge to solve those issues, you know, in, in a timely manner. The, the thing is that most companies are, uh, you know, relatively new to the Office 365 world, and for them it's the lack of control they had at the time the issue appeared um, that was causing a lot of issues. Uh, in, in particular, in this case, it was a CIO, you know, coming down to the IT department telling them, hey, what the hell is going on? And the IT department just literally had to say, well, we don't really know. We we. It, we we think it's an issue with with um, you know exchange online protection, but it took Microsoft a really long time to acknowledge that. Really, a few hours after the first you know issues were called in, they only started tweeting out, and the dashboard still showed that everything was healthy. So for them, they weren't really sure what was causing the issue uh, until a few hours later. And within that gray zone, uh, you know, I, the CIO, the CEO, C-level executives, and all the other users, they expect, you know, some kind of guidance, some kind of information. And, you know, they don't really understand that once you go into Office 365, you have to let go of some of the things and just, you know, sit back and relax, I'd say, um, for for some things to happen. So the, it's it's a little bit twofolded here. First of all, um, the, the lack of communication in the early stages of the issue of Microsoft was really, you know, hurting some companies there. And secondly, companies still need to get used to the fact that sometimes there's just you know, nothing they can do about it. It used to be that the CIO could go down to IT and yell, yell a bit louder against the IT guy and would work a little bit harder um, in order to maybe solve the issue faster, even though I doubt that, but there's, yeah. there's no one to shout to. Well, I mean, you know, maybe the CIO shouldn't have read that magazine article telling them that the cloud solved all problems. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the, you've, you've, you've hit on a couple of, of, of issues which are absolutely right. Once you go into the cloud, you see control. That's just it. You see control. And the local IT guys 
have got to realize that and assume a new role within the company. And I think one aspect of that role is definitely using different sources of information to try and figure out what's going on, uh, such as Twitter, such as uh, Facebook and whatnot, where there, there were discussions about this problem. So they could, could have picked up uh, information. And then packaging whatever information they have, sketchy as it may be, best guess as it may be, but presenting that in, in a form that's consumable by their company uh, from an executive level on down. That, I think, is a role that IT support has got to take once a company goes into the cloud. And it does take time for an on-premises company to figure out how to do this. And, uh, and yes, they need, Microsoft can be criticized because the, the service dashboard wasn't particularly good in this case. It was inaccurate for a long uh, period of the outage. But, you know, as we know in the IT industry, the brown smelly stuff happens and you've got to cope with it. And so uh, my reaction to that is that I'd be saying to the IT department, guys, get your act together and learn how to deal with co uh, cloud incidents because they will happen in the future and you've got to be prepared. Don't just bellyache about Microsoft. Don't just bellyache about Office 365. You know, be prepared to cope. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the other things that I've heard about, um, you know, the cloud and Office 365 in general is, you know, what's happening, what's coming, what's new, you know, suddenly, um, you know, organizations just find out about things as they're implemented or whatever. And now Microsoft has come out with a solution for that called the uh, Office 365 for Business Public Roadmap. So now you can look at the public roadmap and kind of see what's coming, uh, sometime up to sometimes up to you know several months um, ahead, but you know definitely so that you're not being caught by surprise anymore about um, you know changes coming to the cloud environment, and then they at the same time they also um, announced something called first release, which allows you to kind of move to the front of the line to to opt in for uh, new features and kind of be you know the guinea pigs of that. Um, you know, Tony, do you think, well, first of all, what's your opinion of being an early adopter of stuff like that in the cloud? Well, we are all early adopters of new stuff in the cloud because, one, again, one of the aspects of going into the cloud about losing control, ceding control to Microsoft or Google or whoever your cloud provider is, is that you don't get to vote when new features appear. Uh, what you can do, what this particular uh, early release uh, aspect is allowing you to do is to have a view of what's coming. But the, your view is, I think, limited to about 14 days, and you're not going to be able to say, hey, stop this, I, I don't want it. After 14 days, you're going to get it. So again, this is part of uh, IT's uh, journey to change. So they have to figure out how they're going to be able to deal with this. It's another piece of information that they've got to consume and put into context for their, their company and, and then figure out how to communicate it to end users. But going back to the, the roadmap, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is that in the last week we have seen two instances where a change that was not flagged in the roadmap suddenly happened in Office 365. Uh, I wrote a, about one of them when uh, I commented on that they, um, we had this situation where the names of the uh, administrative groups within Office 365 were suddenly changed. So we now had the, the notion of a company administrator and an exchange administrator, a link administrator, but funnily enough, no SharePoint administrator being in, introduced. These are different groups to the role groups that are, that, that, uh, are in exchange, but the point is that they were just introduced 
they were their naming convention was changed uh, and and it wasn't flagged and then uh, after i wrote that that particular post i was contacted by a guy from app river who said hey there was another change made which i hadn't picked up on which was on public folder permissions Whereas if you're in uh, Office 365 and you're running uh, public folders uh, and you mail enable those public folders because you want to have uh, inbound mail come coming in and be delivered to those public folders, people use that for all, all manner of, of different apps. Um, all of a sudden, Microsoft made a security change, a security enhancement indeed, which said that no inbound email for un unauthenticated connections to public folders won't be tolerated. So they did that overnight, and all of a sudden, people found that their uh, their email apps were, were breaking. Uh, now, there's an easy workaround, which is that you just grant uh, the anonymous pseudo user uh, permission to create items in a public folder. But the point is, again, this was a change introduced by Microsoft for the best possible reason. You can't argue with the security uh, uh, change. The best possible possible reason, but it was introduced without warning and without telling people the consequences and without giving them the solution. So, you know, the roadmap is great. It gives you a view in what's uh, what's happening of the 27 or so changes that are due to come. Uh, for the on-premises community, it might give you some woes or tears because you're looking at and you see some things that will not appear in the on-premises world for, for the next while uh, or the foreseeable future. But, you know, but some people at Microsoft, maybe, 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 maybe. But for some people at Microsoft, some of the program managers and engineers, they, they badly need to go to the training class and uh, learn about customer awareness updates. But it's it's nice to know that there, there's finally a mechanism, you know, where people before used to say, I, I moved everything out to the cloud and then, I, you know, now I don't know what's happening. You know, at least now there's there's a little bit of communication about what to expect and changes and stuff. And, and well, I'm not sure. Uh, hold on a minute. I'm not sure that anybody ever knows what's exactly happening <laughs> in the cloud, uh, you know. But the, the point is, is that, yes, they are listening, which is always goodness, and that they have instituted this website. It's a mechanism. So if they don't do it as they, they didn't do it in the two instances I gave, they will be beaten up about it because they've set an expectation now in customer minds. And so being beaten up will force further change and it will force them to adhere to the procedure that they've laid down. And when that happens and when the, the roadmap is fully functioning and every single change shows up there, then it will be truly useful. Yeah, I'd like to see, you know, some sort of, you know, better feedback about here's what we're thinking about doing or here's what we're likely going to do. And, you know, uh, we'd like to hear from you, you know, vote it up or vote it down or uh, whatever the case may be. I'd like to see that more of a, on a public format versus, you know, some of the bigger customers just calling their local TAM or whatever and saying, you know, you can't do this or we need this or whatever the case may be. So, but we'll see. But, you know, t talking about, you know, being stuff, um, you know, having exchange in the cloud, um, you know, I read your a part of your article about um, exchange on Azure uh, being an unattractive uh, proposition. So uh, highlight us on that. Well, so Amazon has been offering um, exchange running on AWS for quite a while. They, they started to do it, I think, about late 2010. It's based on Exchange 2010. Maybe it was a little bit later than that. And so you can go to Amazon and, and, and they will give you a fully functioning uh, Exchange deployment on AWS, which is all fine and dandy, except it's not supported. So there, there's a certain 
this is kind of like the old vir virtualization debate uh, around 2003, 2004, when, you know, at that stage you could go and VMware would, would virtualize your machines, but you weren't, uh, you weren't ever supported. And then, of course, Microsoft came along with their uh, hypervisor, and all of a sudden support arrives. So Microsoft has Azure. The question is, will support arrive? And I think, yes, eventually, maybe. But the bigger, it's, it, to me, it's not a case of technology. And in, in, indeed, it's just like the virtualization debate. It's a case of economics. Because you can virtualize anything. It's just like you can put anything you like in Azure. You can make them work. But whether or not that's the economically correct decision is entirely a different matter. So with Azure, or with any of these uh, cloud platforms that charge for resources, uh, you get into a situation where you, you're going to pay for a lot for disk, you're going to pay for a lot for CPU, and you're going to pay for a lot for, um, for, for network costs, because these are the things that Exchange just loves. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, so, so the kind of value prop that I'm, I'm be, that's been put in front of me is that I can use this Azure platform, that's great, but I still have to do all the mundane stuff about configuration and keeping the servers up to date, applying cumulative updates, making sure they're secure and stuff like that. So, okay, well, I, I guess I get a little bit of a benefit there because they're not my physical servers and I don't have to deal with them. Microsoft would be much better at doing that. But then I'm going to get this big bill at the end of the month for all of these resources that I'm using. Uh, and as we know, Exchange is a, a wonderfully slimmed-down application that makes hardly any use of resources at all. You know, hardly ever sniffs at a piece of RAM and, and, and wouldn't care to use a disk block if it, if it passed by. Uh, so I just don't, I don't see right now, given the current Azure charging patterns, I don't see that there's an economic case for Exchange on Azure. And that's what basically I was saying. Yeah, I mean Michael, I mean, you, we've talked about it in the past. I mean, have you have you ever run uh, seen anybody running Exchange on Azure? Uh, well, for testing, yes, but definitely not for. And I certainly hope there is no one out there that does it uh, for production. But uh, you know, while Tony was talking about the cost, I opened up the Azure pricing calculator, and you know, just a single VM, um, and that's just assuming that you'll have one virtual machine running in Azure, uh, which you shouldn't, especially if you're doing Exchange 2013. But you know, uh, and. Uh, a server would cost you about easily 1600 bucks a month um, with no extras, no whistles, no bells, no overhead for what, whatsoever. It's just the plain virtual machine. Um, that's a lot of money, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, as Tony said, it's it's very hard to beat, you know, Office 365 for one. And if you can't do that, you know, even on-premises will be cheaper than that. Well, same thing. I, and uh, even resources uh, in terms of disk and RAM are a little bit less with Link in some circumstances. I, I remember... Justin Moore is talking about it, and, and even just for a, a lab scenario for, for a link, it was kind of crazy. So it makes you wonder, like, well, what the pricing as it is, what what would you be putting up there unless you're, you know? Well, well you know, there's there there was also there was also an issue with link in trying to properly <laughs> configure edge servers with right. DM, uh, DMZ subnets too. So I, I hear that's been resolved, but I haven't looked into it. Well, the other thing is that, and 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 maybe I'm, I'm you know. 
thinking way way ahead here, but does it really make sense for Microsoft to start offering that, you know, putting your Exchange servers in Azure? I figure they have, you know, a lot more to lose having you hosting your own servers in Azure than just telling you, hey, go to Office 365 because that's where you, you know, you'd better go to. Um, I didn't see any value for Microsoft trying to support having your own Exchange servers running in Azure. Um, but it, it, to me, it doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I think uh, hold on. I, mean, I think there's there, there's two particular points that you got to consider. First is the competitive thing. If some customers are interested in using Amazon Web Services for this, uh, then Microsoft really should have a competitive uh, answer to it. So they could be thinking about it like that. Secondly, I think there are, there's there's probably some value in teasing out some disaster recovery scenarios where you may want to just go and configure some servers and have them ready there, you know, in a form of a, maybe a virtual data center that's ready to swing in if you lose uh, service elsewhere. So, you know, we haven't really parsed those type of scenarios out because Exchange is not yet fully uh, supported uh, on Azure. But they're the type of things that, that would be in the back of my mind as to why Microsoft might push ahead with with um, with Azure support finally. And I, I may not be with this version of Exchange. It may not be with 2013. It may be with the next release. So. Well, I, I think you might have a point. I didn't think about the uh, disaster recovery functionalities um, that you could have, which kind of makes sense. But with Exchange 2013, as you just pointed out, Tony, um, there is a lot of, of other things that come to play, like bandwidth, uh, network connectivity, things that are out of control for Microsoft. So I imagine the list of prerequisites before you would even be able to go there and then do something would be very, you know, very large, um, which would make it less feasible for most companies. Well, you know, again, if Microsoft was going to make Exchange a real, a real candidate for Azure, I imagine that, firstly, they would provide off-the-shelf, prepackaged, ready-to-go Azure in, uh, instances for Exchange, and secondly, they would uh, they would address the the charging platform to take uh, take account of the characteristics of the application, you know. But certainly, right now given what we know of today's technology and today's Azure, to me, it's not an economically viable platform. It's a great opportunity for a computer science uh, lab. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's a great place to go and do some testing. Uh, but uh, after that, for production, nah. Well, assuming cost comes down, what about, I mean, is it, you know, do we see, does anyone think that we'll see more, you know, production deployments, assuming costs start getting more in line with, well, unless Microsoft is, you know, giving a go and telling that it's supported, you shouldn't definitely not do that. And secondly, with Exchange 2013, even if the cost would, you know, come down to a few hundred bucks a month and even less than that, which would be great, um, try extending your database availability group to Azure for doing that. Uh, if you were going to use it for DR or stuff, and that's one of the, the roads that you're going to, you know, go down to, and, and that's not viable at all because because of the bandwidth considerations. Uh, maybe if you're using the new MPLS stuff, the express routes into into the Azure data centers, that might you know help you a little bit. But still, I see a lot of technical problems there, uh, which might be solved in in a future uh, future version. 
But with whatever is available today, and let's face it, there's still a lot of customers out there on, you know, not Exchange 2013. Um, they, they, unless they go full Azure when it would be supported and, and much cheaper, I don't see it, you know, be a viable solution at all. I, th- I think that the first thing uh, Exchange-related uh, that will be supported on Azure will be the uh, file share witness in the third data center or the virtual third, third data center. Well, here's the thing. Um, I, I've thought about that, too, because I think it was the very first time it was the first, well, not the first, the first Mac after a long time in uh, Orlando, if I'm correct. Uh, there was someone in the audience that, you know, jumped up and said to Scott Schnoll, I think it was, well, how about Azure? Can we use it? And I think it was you, John, uh, that asked that, qu- that question back then, even. Um, and we're two years later, even three years, maybe, um, there's still nothing that has changed. And the problem that I see there, Dave, is even though I would love to have it as functionality, you're still relying on the network connectivity between you and the Azure data centers, which is unreliable as hell. Really? Right. Okay. There's no, I mean, if anyone has an idea how to solve that, please tell me. But as long as there is an operator in between, which, you know, have you ever done a trace route from different locations to the data centers? The hoops that you go through, it's just amazing. It's like 25 hops to get to the data center sometimes, which is sometimes reliable, sometimes it isn't because of the content delivery network in between, and I get that. But still, there is so much at play in between that I don't see how a file share witness in Azure today, that is, is going to be reliable at all. I would love it to be reliable, though. Don't get me wrong, but... Well, I think that's an issue that you have anytime you put your, you know, pieces of your infrastructure out past your corporate network, whether it's Office 365 or Azure. I mean, you know, the network networking comes into play, and you know, if you have a WAN outage or whatever, you lose access to all that stuff, and um, you know, that's always a concern for some companies because they're just not confident that the network connection is going to be up and be stable, and 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 allow their resources to get to that stuff. Well, e- even up and, and, and having, you know, enough bandwidth. I don't think that bandwidth is less and less a concern these days. Uh, I see companies having a 10 gig Ethernet connection between data centers. And uh, I, I think that that is not really an issue. It's it's rather the latency that is, could be causing an issue or the occasional, you know, small drops that aren't noticed by, by anything that is stateless. But for a file share windows or even a member in a DAG, if, if your network is flaky, um, at, at just a tiny bit flaky, that could cause issues. Sure, you can tune it a little bit so that it is, you know, less. It has less impact on your DAG, for instance. But still, um, I don't. The public internet is less reliable than an internal network or something. That I'm less reliable in in that you know in that sense um, than an internal network. Um, at least well, that's and- how. And, and Tony hit it right on the head, you know, that, you know, when you put stuff out in the cloud, you have to seed control. So the fact that it's, you know, out on somebody else's network and, um, you know, my, my favorite story about, you know, the UPS truck coming, uh, trying to come down the street with the overhead lines that were just a little too low. And he pulled <laughs> down the, the entire uh, uh, twisted uh, copper uh, bundle and knocked everybody in the subdivision off the Internet for, you know, the better part of a day. Um, you know, that, that hurts businesses, especially, you know, sales related businesses, which are, you know, trying to get information in, but, um, yeah, I, I, we'll see. I, I think Azure is going to be fairly popular if they, if they can get around some of these issues, 
Um, I think companies that are willing to um, embrace new um, new platforms that they might not have before because they don't have the necessary technical expertise on hand to uh, to support something, you know, might go to um, Office 365 or they, you know, they might not want to expand a data center, so they might go to Azure or whatever. I think there's going to be a huge, huge uh, problem for Microsoft to uh, try and uh, give customer advice. When do you go on-premises? When do you have hybrid? When do you use Office 365 Pure? Or, or when do you use this fourth platform that doesn't seem to have any huge, compelling uh, features that are crying out for your attention right now? That's my that's my right. summary of, the, of it right now. Right. And, of course, you know, shifting gears, there's, you know – an another way to somewhat save money or uh, consolidate, and that's with virtualization. And, Tony, you wrote an article recently about, you know, what's Microsoft saying? Are they saying not to virtualize Exchange? I mean, what's going on with that? Well, I, I, so Microsoft has put out their preferred architecture for 2013, and their preferred architecture says that uh, they use physical servers. And they use physical servers because they think that, A, it's simpler, um, B, because uh, you get uh, the, the best hardware utilization. Now, a preferred architecture is a preferred architecture in the eyes of the people who created the architecture. And anybody who creates architecture is influenced by many different factors, their, their own experience, their work environment, what they're being told by superiors, how they're being influenced by their peers, uh, customer feedback, and, and, of course, the corporate strategy and whatnot. And in Microsoft's case, they're also influenced by the fact that Office 365, which is the world's largest deployment of Exchange with, uh, what, 100,000 servers plus, it uses physical machines. Now, you take all that, and what you have is a recommendation from Microsoft about their preferred architecture for doing 2013. And like any other recommendation that you receive from uh somebody outside of your own company, you would be foolish, you'd be mad, you'd be insane, you'd be crackers if you just took it and said, yeah, that's what I'm going to do with it. What you've got to do is take it and put it into context with your needs, your business requirements, what the technology environment is within the company, et cetera, et cetera, and then you make sense. But coming out of it is this question, well, why doesn't Microsoft virtualize? Right? And they've advanced these reasons and you say, well, couldn't I get good hardware utilization? Isn't that one of the reasons why you virtualize? And then you remember that, well, Office 365 is a very special environment. I mean, the way they provide, they do software updates in Office 365, when they take servers offline, they take them in, put them in a pool of unused servers, they reduce them to bare metal, and then they go and install the latest version of Windows, whatever it is, complete with all security packs, patches and whatnot, and the latest version of Exchange, and then bring it back online. That's something that most on-premises customers wouldn't use. So is it that that's influencing them? Or is it just a feeling that once you virtualize, you you incur a number of overheads that they are saying you don't really need for exchange. You're incur incurring an overhead in terms of software licenses because you are going to have to pay Microsoft for Hyper-V or you are going to have to pay uh, VMware for VMware. Uh, you're going to have to pay in terms of extra hardware because, yeah, the hypervisor is great and it enables all these virtual machines to run, but heck, it's got it's got to take up some resources itself, you know? And then you're going to pay in terms of 
uh, added complexity in terms of um, a disaster recovery, uh, day-to-day operations, whatever, and you're going to have to pay in terms of training for your admins and the people who set up all and run the machines. So they're saying to me, look, one of the big things we've done in Exchange 2013 is simplify. We've simplified our protocols. We've simplified the number of server roles. We simplified and automated whenever possible. Look at the simplified DAG that they introduced in Exchange 2013 Service Pack 1. It's another example. And they're saying, why do you want all this complexity of virtualization? And again, you've got to take that kind of uh, recommendation and put it in context with your own company. And if your company has, you know, uh, taken uh, a a deliberate strategic decision to use virtualization – as a platform, a common platform for many different applications. If the company has invested in the skills acquisition and ongoing uh, skills uh, retraining and an update to make effective use of virtualization, if the company has got a well uh, thought out uh, disaster recovery and whatever plan that's needed in terms of operations, and you're happy with your your Hyper-V or VMware deployment, and you know that it's going to do a good job, then I say, yeah, the preferred architecture is just one view. You've looked at it. You might get some lessons out of it. I think, you know, two two key things are automation is fantastic, and simplify simplification is also f- fantastic. And if you take those and apply them into your world, whether it's virtualized or not, then you're getting value from it. But to get back to the the point is, I don't think they're saying virtualize don't virtualize exchange. I think they're saying virtualize exchange if you secure a clear business benefit or a clear technology benefit from it, and you're prepared for uh, what you might call the downsides of virtualization. That's the extra overhead and cost and all the rest of it. So that's that's my take on the subject. See, you should never ask an Irishman a simple question because, you you know, you're going to get a seven-minute reply. You know, we're, what can I say? We're all politicians. <laughs> well, that's fine. We had, we had John so that we could hear your opinion. There you go. I, I always have an opinion on everything. Well, with regards to the PLA, too, I mean, I, I run across that with Link quite a bit in terms of, you know, what Microsoft's saying that the PLA design should be for an organization, and it's like, well, that that's great, but in this organization, that might not be the best for them. It might be the best for you guys to walk off and say, hey, you know, we told them to do it the way we do it, but it might not be right for the organization, so there's always, you know, kind of a balancing act there, I find. Well, the thing is that... Um it's entirely true it's a balancing act, and if it makes sense for you, then by all means, go and virtualize. But first of all, do it properly, uh, as Tony said. But secondly, there's a lot of companies out there that just virtualize to virtualize because they think it's the right thing to do, uh, whereas it definitely isn't always, you know. But let's take the, let's take the example of high availability. Uh, I mean, um, and oh, why not? I, I've come across a vendor recently that you know pointed out that uh, doing cloning of a virtual machine would be a great idea to uh, you know enhance the functionality of a ver- uh, of an exchange server, which is then obviously needs to be virtualized. I mean, really, uh, it can't be that simple, can it be? I mean, there are people buying into that story, which is fine for them and fine for whoever wants to believe that story. But if you're going to do things right, do it the right way. You're, you're not going to take a boat and fly with it, are you? Okay. Not easily. No, I mean, you could add wings to it, but... <laughs> it's not what flying boats were. <laughs> yeah, seaplanes. Flying... Have you ever seen a flying boat? I've seen a... a, a yeah, um, tons of them. 
You oh. must have seen them. Your son must have seen them down in the, the south of France, Michael, any time you go, because there's so many forest fires down there. That's how they put the blooming forest fires out. They land the boats, and the, they land the flying boats into the ocean, get some water, and bring it, put it over the fire. Well, so your, I, your analogy doesn't work, my friend. <laughs> I, I suspect I, that I you're... I suspect that you're still in deep sorrow because Belgium got beaten yesterday. I think that's what what's happening here. Uh, but uh, yeah, even though the analogy doesn't stand for you know flying boats, but still, I mean, um, a lot of companies just virt- if if you ask a lot of companies why do you virtualize, they just say, well, we just do, we virtualize everything, and that's the answer you get, and that's where I have a problem with. I mean, if it doesn't make sense, even from a technological technologically point of view, then why would you even you know? consider doing it. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first customer who ended up having uh, virtual machines sitting solely on, an, uh, on a host because couldn't play nicely with other roles. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've seen that in the past. Just like you said, you know, a single beefy uh, server, blade server, and you know, grand machine solely for one virtual machine for exchange because it was eating away too much resources. You know, where is the sense in that? I mean, it's cool because you can toss the roll around to other hosts. Well, here's the thing. You could do that if you have plenty of hosts to go by, but consider the following scenario where you have an exchange server which eats away 120 gigs of RAM, which in Exchange 2013 is likely to happen when you grow a certain amount of mailboxes. Um... You know, where are you going to stack away 128 gigs of RAM and keep that amount of RAM available on all the other hosts so that you can fail over that virtual machine to the other hosts uh, whenever you have an issue with that, you know, with that one host? It's just not something you can easily do. But, you know, the, the, uh, I think uh, you're missing the great advantage of virtualization. If you virtualize, you can participate in the awesome debate about <laughs> NFS support for exchange. Oh, dear. Did, did, did you mean there is no support? Oh, my God, I'm shocked. Well, you know, yeah, I, I regret to bring the bad news, but there is no support for NFS in exchange. It's just not there, guys. But that doesn't stop you having the debate, you see, and that's what people in the virtualization world like, which is good. It's good to it's good to talk about these things. Good to talk about your sorrows and your woes and your problems. And then, and then you get into the debate about you know um, Hyper-V versus VMware and which one's better. And of course, the one that you have is always the better one. Sure. Sure. Anyway, so well, good info. Thanks for that. And we'll head over to the uh, the link topics now. <clears throat> First up is uh, some updates for the clients from Microsoft. Um, security update uh, 36, which uh, basically resolves a problem where somebody could send you a malformed uh, link meeting request, and if you clicked on it, it could result in some information disclosure. So that has been addressed in uh, MS14-036, so be sure you uh, update things accordingly. Uh, the next one was a uh, an update for the client that just fixes a couple of, of minor things about upload notifications when you upload uh, PowerPoint files, um, some low video quality problems, and some timeouts where um, it took a while to sign in to a front-end server after, uh, after you got disconnected. So uh, definitely a good update to get out to your clients. And the last update that they came out with was uh, an update for the Mac client, 
and um, unfortunately, it doesn't fix anything. Um, it, <laughs> well, I, I say that I say that somewhat jokingly because it does add E911 functionality and it does um, add some video and file sharing enhancements. But you know, a lot of the things that people complain about the the Mac client are not addressed at all. And and my biggest complaints have always been around the fact that you can't do anything with your contacts list. Um, every time you open the client, it starts with the contact list fully expanded. Um, you can't reorganize the contact list. They're always listed alphabetically. Um, you can't tag clients for status changes or anything like that. And, and to me, those are all key features that a lot of people use in the Windows client. And I don't understand why this hasn't been addressed on the Mac client. But, no. you know, John, John, you're a hardcore Mac guy. So, I mean. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the current state of the, the Blink Mac client is, um, let's, let's just be nice and say not good. <laughs> but I could go on and on. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's actually a huge problem right now. But, you know, whether anyone wants to rationalize it or not, there's a lot of people running Macs out there that are big, you know, that are big link, link shops, and it's really problematic. Um, the stability's been very bad, and it's not gotten it's gotten somewhat better with 14.09, but it's still not, you know, solid. And then if you add all the feature disparity, I mean, it's you know, I know Microsoft's secured it a lot, and I know I know I've heard rumors that there's a version coming sooner than later. They should, you know, hopefully. Bring it back and you know, because again, it's also labeled a 2011 client, right? So, it's, you know, time's been moving on. You know, it's starting to you know, even sound old at this point. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's there should be a sense of urgency to uh, to fix some of these things. I, I would say. Do Do you think, John, that there's a large number of people using the Mac client? Yeah, that, it, that, I, it, that it's I mean, worth it's Microsoft uh, to come out, you know, with uh, a newer version. Absolutely, um, the University of Chicago, which I'm not sure how many seats they are, but it's in the tens of thousands. Um, big link shop. They went full link voice. Um, they presented a, like a segment in, uh, well, you know, what their, you know, what their general um, deployment was like and everything at the Chicago Link uh, Users Group, uh, you know, a few, five, eight months ago. And the the stability of that client was a huge hindrance on their deployment because you know this is what they're you know huge university huge mac shop um and uh you know you, you know if you're taking someone's phone away and replace it with a client that crashes every three minutes that's a problem right so um but yeah i see a lot more i mean again it might not be you know tens of thousands in every company but there's going to be a group of in the hundreds or maybe a thousand in, in most companies i see that, are, that use max predominantly so um and some of them are vocal right so you know and again when you're taking away someone's desk phone and giving link it's got to be solid you know so well, not not only are some of them vocal, but some of them are CXOs. You know, yeah, right. I, I see mean, a lot yeah, of those with surprisingly with enough, right? So I mean, it gets a, you know, see level people get Max for Christmas, right? And uh, they want it supported, and then they're wondering like, why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? Why can this? Why does this work? Why does it keep crashing? You know, right? The important people, not you know, not Tony Redmond important, <laughs> but you know. Um, well, I see an issue with like right now. I'm, I'm dealing with an issue with a six uh, fifty five hundred. There's like no Max support for these, you know, bigger. Polycom boxes, and again, that's a huge problem because you can't just like have somebody go in a conference room. The one person that's in the conference room has got a Mac that wants to run the you know the link conference and use the camera and stuff. You're pretty much, you can't even use it as an audio device right now. That's how bad it is. But so um, I I know one organization that that's a huge that's that's hurting Polycom you know for them because they have enough Macs where if they if somebody with a MacBook can't go use it, I don't want to buy it. You know. Yeah, I I can say that you know you, you know I'm a, I'm a fairly strong PC guy. I do have a MacBook Pro. Um, and the the one reason why I don't use that laptop more is because of how bad the Mac client is for Link. Right. Um, I mean, it's, and it's, and, it's and it, it probably right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it probably wouldn't be so bad if I'd never used the Windows client and didn't know any better. Right. 
But, you know, you switch from the Windows client to the Mac client and you can't sort your contact list. What the heck is that all about? So oh, now you have to know. you have to get strategic in how you name your groups just so that you can get them sorted into, you know, some semblance of uh, productivity. Um, you know, and you can't tag people for status changes. That's huge. I use that all the time. I mean, how else would I bo- bother you, John, if I didn't, you know, have it popping <laughs> up saying that you were available now? I'm always available. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and that's uh, that was the other thing too. Is uh, you know, besides stability, right, and just you know, the general feature disparity, disparity, you know, it's just it's one of those things that people get upset about. I mean, again, like I said, I was saying a second ago. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I virtualize on. You know, I run Mac as my host OS, but I run VMs for a variety of reasons, and that's one of the major reasons is is the, you know, link client. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna say too, you know, when the web client on the Mac is better than the actual desktop client, I mean, it says a lot, you know. Well, you know, I've 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 had um, environments where users had Macs and they were running VMs and trying to run the Windows client in a VM, and you know that to me always they were always having issues, you know, and those issues would go away if they would just use the Mac client, even right. though it was you know feature deprived as I like to to call it. But um, you know, here, here's hoping that uh, Microsoft does come out with. You know, a, a better Mac client with uh, you know, better feature parity. Yeah, and like I said, from what I heard, that that is uh, they're hearing the pain. I think I think it's <laughs> slowly but right. surely. You know. Well, you know, and, and speaking of, of different clients, um, I'll, I'll do a little plug for Matt Landis here. Um, so Matt Landis is one of the Link MVPs, and his company uh, Landis Computer um, has come out with a new attendant client for Link. Um, so. Uh, a lot of people will know that there is no 2013 attendant client. The 2010 cli- uh, attendant client does work fine, but um, if you talk to people who are used to using traditional PBXs, the uh, the 2010 attendant client is not laid out and doesn't have the features that they would have, you know, come to expect in you know PBS uh, um, connectivity. Um, so you know, Matt and his team came out with a fabulous uh, attendant client called Attendant Pro. And um, I would definitely recommend that if you're looking for an attendant client that you check out his solution. Um, he, he has done a couple of um, uh, release um, meetings, and those were recorded, and I believe you can already get to them um, and view them and see kind of, you know, the perspective of the user's perspective and how it works and how it has basically all the features built into it. So, you know, kudos to Matt and his team and definitely check it out. Yeah, about the Attendant Pro client, um, one thing I, I think may be missing from it could, would be an exchange integration where you can check out the calendars for the different people you want to transfer calls to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big ask here in, in the Nordics anyway. Um and the reason for us not using um, the regular attendant client, and and maybe using more like third party like Compatella or or Trio or some of those. Right. So um, I will check up with Matt and see what they plan for uh, adding more calendar integrations in there as well. Yeah, and the, and they can do like three or four different kinds of transfers and and everything. It was uh, I was uh, very impressed by. Uh, the the finished product. I, I was able to take a look at it at Link Conference earlier in the year, and um, it was coming along nicely then. Oh, did you? I, I, don't, I didn't know he had it. Uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, it's it's uh, you can configure it to be optimized for touch. So if you have a big touch screen, um, it, it works real well. Um, you can do almost everything in it via hotkeys on the keyboard or a mouse. Um, it's you know they really thought of a lot of things when. Um, uh, when they started working on this, and I think they've executed it fairly well. Yeah, and they had some kind of lookup service as well. 
Oh yeah, it'll look up um, like uh, dynamics information or a- actually anything. Uh, you can configure it how to look stuff up. So it'll you know it'll pop up a dynamic screen when the phone rings and and bring up all the client uh, or the, all the callers information and everything like that. So um, some really really cool stuff. And it runs. It's a very low footprint stuff. It doesn't require any extra um, hardware on the client side or on the server side. Um, you just install it. It's a one-minute, one single-click install on the client, and uh, and away you go. So, uh, so, so good stuff. We'll try and get Matt on here to talk about it soon. Next up, uh, John, you had uh, talked about this um, uh, change link conferencing dial-in number display order uh, script. So uh, Anthony Caragol had uh, come out with something new, and you checked it out. Yeah, yeah. I, I follow him on Twitter. He's, uh, I think, I'm not sure if he lives in Chicago. But he works for a partner based in Chicago, SWC. Um, and uh, it looked interesting. I, mean, I had to do this in the past, uh, you know. So if those who are not familiar, if you, you know, you list the, the, the conference dial conferencing numbers, um, there's the main number that shows up in the Outlook meeting request, and then there's a list of, you know, if you click here for more numbers on the dial-in page. But uh, rearranging those when you add them, let's say if you want, you know, want to bubble up higher on a list, has not been necessarily pleasant. And, and as far as I know, it was just ripping them out and replacing them. It was the only way to really do it. Um, so he wrote a little script that looks like a, you know, kind of used the um, what's that grid called? That grid out the GUI power tool box. Yeah, grid view. And, um, yeah. yeah, grid view. And uh, um, does what it says. You know, it loads the dial plans, uh, the conference numbers from, from different regions, and allows you to you know add uh, add you know promote or, or demote you know uh, orders of of, of the uh, Oh, the conferencing numbers, which, you know, again, a nice nice little tool. So definitely check it out. We have the link up there. Yeah, definitely. Anthony's doing some pretty cool stuff. And, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And, and also people that have uh, had some pretty good articles lately, uh, Michael Tressler, um, who most of you probably know as Flinchbot online, uh, wrote an article about um, a missing port from um, the Link 2013 documentation. And um, have have you read that article, John? Yeah, I actually went through it because actually it was pretty interesting to me. And uh, I mean, again, it's sort of it's not what they call it a corner case, but and actually, uh, but now reading reading through it, I kind of thought like there was a time when I might have had this problem and didn't realize it myself. Actually, so the the the, the, the core piece is that if you're deploying SBAs, so you have users homed on that registrar, an SBA registrar, that um, there's an additional port that needs to connect from the home pools to the SBA for mobility to work on Thor 2013. Um, so it's an interesting read um, um, that, again, it's something that's not on like the design, the design calculator, design, you know, the link design tool um, and, uh, and other resources. I'm not sure if, like, it's on the link validator site either. But, uh, again, something I hadn't seen before, so very interesting. I would definitely check it out, if, especially if you have uh, SBAs deployed. Or planning and deploying them, and you know, and then you know, again, the more concise you are with your list of firewalls and, and directions and ports to the, to the firewall guys, the happier everyone is, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And and also, you know, if if you're looking at network connectivity and call quality and, and things like that, Microsoft has updated the uh, the call quality methodology uh, scorecard CQM, and now there's actually some pretty cool scripts that uh, that come with it that allow you to. Um, to kind of run through some stuff and execute uh, some SQL queries and collect some data and then kind of compare that with, um, um, you know, some uh, kind of best practices information. And um, it's, it's really cool. I mean, we've internally, we have uh, Vic Jaswal who writes a a bunch of uh, PowerShell scripts at modality um, has done some stuff with pulling data out of here, but this uh, CQM PowerShell script is, is phenomenal for looking up all kinds of data and being able to pinpoint where stuff is. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned because actually I've been tasked, um, you know, for operationally to, to kind of operationalize the CQM data and report on it, like, say, weekly so we can get trending. 
and it's it's freaking awesome. Um, the only thing I wish is what you know. I'm trying to figure out a way to not only automate it, which I think I have a handle on how to do it, but also combine some other things. And 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 to Vic's uh, thing, I was actually playing with those yesterday because he's got a way in there to actually do the raw SQL query. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that old article about like querying, you know, who's who's using what client version at the at the at the at the moment. You know, but the problem is. With 13, you have to hit RTC local on every front end, but you know that's doable, right? But if I can oh, automate, yeah, I, have, that I querying, have a script called Get CS Connections that does it all for you, John. Right? <laughs> yeah, but, but does, does, yeah, no, I, and I've run yours, but does yours? Um, it, it tells you who's what versions, but and the users too, right? Yeah, you can look at you know, show me everybody running a specific version. You can say show me everybody and all the versions involved, everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so but the CQM data is again same thing because I want to. I'm kind of looking away for trying to automate that uh, and then have it bubble up and ultimately be try to publish that data on a central, um, a central you know sort of portal. Because the one up the one the only issue I see with that are, again my Excel skills are are only so good. But like you actually have to like once you bring the once you load that CQM data into that master spreadsheet, you kind of have to like basically hit some buttons to kind of load it in. So I don't. I have no idea how to automate that. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean the the sequence is very powerful. The KHI stuff is very cool too. But I'm struggling with the fact that there's no way to automate it. Um, if, you know, for those we've talked about it before. But if you look at the networking um, guide for Link now, I think it's two two. The you know the all those utilities for the CQM and KHI stuff are bundled in there, and um, the, the 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 key key health indicator reports are awesome. But you kind of have to build your own way to summarize all of these perf data and get them into like one spreadsheet to kind of show the data, you know. Um, and that's a lot of work if you've got a lot of front ends. So, <laughs> you know, that's a one uh, uh, challenge with that. Right. That I've seen anyway. Right. Well, it's better than having to deal with Cisco, right? Well, there's that. Because, you know, now there's information out or an article on Cisco.com about uh, Cisco and Microsoft link content sharing connectivity and, and, uh, um, you know, what's going on with that. Are they some voodoo magic uh, black box stuff going on there? Well, I mean, yeah, if you look, we posted it. You know, it's not so much like an article of. Uh, in terms of like there's like you know news and dates and hard products, but it's sort of like to say, hey, we're working on this interop kind of thing for you know more than just I am and presence, and uh, you know more to follow kind of thing. But 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 I found found it interesting, and that's why I kind of wanted to you know for us to put it on this episode. Is there was a lot of in in the discussions, a lot of um, talk about co- companies who are already doing that interop via hardware software solutions, which I hadn't really heard of. Um, so I find it really kind of fascinating. So if you're kind of you know being tasked with that. In your organizations to to get you know kind of higher level integration other than what we can do with um, you know hard you know like Polycom whatever um, between interop with Cisco this might be you know you might have not heard of some of these these, these solutions and maybe you know help you out that's why I kind of want to point it out because I hadn't heard of it but so <laughs> help me out well right and now Link is bigger than than um, Cisco's offerings according to some of the stats now so they're on the downslide so they have to. There has to be some connectivity with Link. They uh, they can't just be an island forever. You know, right. I think it's a, uh, you know, in some of your larger organizations where they have a, a bigger investment in in Cisco hardware, they're reluctant to change over to Link because, you know, a lot of that hardware is not compatible with Link. So anything that can, um, you know, create a, a coexistence or better user experience, I think, uh, is going to be a good thing. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, Interop is still a big deal. Um, you know. Not yeah, everybody just. It's an interesting discussion because uh, Microsoft is also coming with that uh, interop role in uh, right. Link Server version next. Uh, but the problem here is uh, also video sharing, but also the content sharing part, where from Cisco you can share content uh, to Link, 
because it's video, but uh, from Link to Cisco, you can't share uh, desktop sharing and stuff like that yet. Uh, and that's where the um, third-party co companies come in, like Pexip and Arcano. And I've also heard that Polycom is doing some cool stuff with uh, Interop as well. And, uh, and this solves the problem between sharing content or desktop sharing from link to, to the hardware endpoints uh, that uh, Cisco has or, or Polycom or, or whatnot. So they're converting the RDP stream to the presentation video layer. And um, that's, I think that's uh, quite interesting because then you, you don't have to replace anything. You can just reuse what you got and then incorporate link into that uh, organization for those users who need that. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, on typically Pixip and Akamo, you don't join the link uh, MCU, or you don't join the Cisco MCU, but you need to join on this third-party gateway and um, uh, and have the interrupt uh, being done there with the um, transcoding of video and stuff. Yeah, I, I just sat through a demo with uh, Pexip uh, or a, a meeting with Pexip uh, a week or so ago, and and some of the stuff that they're able to do with getting all these dissimilar systems to talk to each other, I think, is fabulous. Um, you know, it's it's better than nothing. They can do some things like uh, some simple barbelling and uh, and things like that. But the fact that you can have you know uh, legacy Cisco equipment uh, be connected to uh, be considered essentially an endpoint in a link conference. Uh, um, I, I think is is fabulous, and I think that's definitely going to close the gap for a lot of organizations who are reluctant to uh, embrace um, uh, Link further than just I am in presence. Um, you know, by by having this ability to connect stuff now. So, um, you know, maybe we'll uh, we'll see if we can get some of the Pexip people on here to talk about how they're how they're doing this stuff. It's very interesting. Yeah, it is, and um, uh, and and that's why I I'm not sure how the the interrupt role for for link version next will scale because uh, you still have the problem with the application sharing between link and, and Cisco. Uh, so I'm not sure how, how big that role is is actually going to be. Yeah, it's gonna be from what we know. It's gonna be kind of limited to an initial at least too, in terms of you know it's mostly gonna be very specific list of Tamper devices, right? Right. It's a, it's a specific. Uh, I, I think it's. Uh, C series or something like that that um, has um, uh, the um, the latest software that can do um, video, so so it's quite limited in terms of um, stuff as well. Yeah, but but it is it is nice because it does close that particular gap it'll be nice you know for for those organizations that have just that equipment and and for you know orgs that have you know some some different equipment than maybe something like pexip or any of the other solution providers can uh, um can step in so yeah as long as they can be transparent uh, and I, I think uh, that's where they want to be as well be a transparent uh, player in the market so uh, link guys only care about link meetings and the Cisco guys care about Cisco meetings and then they can meet uh, in the middle yeah uh, so and it's uh, it's gonna be really interesting to see uh, they develop their product further in terms of maybe kind of hijacking link meetings uh, if you see that the endpoints are joining a meeting then move the meeting to uh, a Pexip uh, bridge so, um, so they the link guys just join the link meeting and just um, go through to the Pixel Bridge. Right. So there's a lot of cool thinking about, around, and um, I think this is just a start. And um, 
and yeah, we can see some more uptake in, in organizations doing this. As well as they can do bar building of video as well. Mm-hmm. So you have different sites in uh, around the world, and you don't have to have uh, people uh, calling into one site, even though they are in different uh, continents. But they can dial into their local bridge and uh, and have um, uh, some uh, lightweight video going between those sites. So it's uh, quite interesting. Yeah, cool. Um, next up, SIP Pinger tool. So Graham Cropley uh, came up with a pretty cool little um, tool for. Uh, link professionals, and if you're trying to determine whether there's connectivity or whether a remote server is listening uh, or responding, um, Graham came up with this tool, the SIP Pinger tool, that allows you to kind of query other servers on various ports and see if they're responding. So it's kind of like an extension to um, um, Telnet, but you can actually send different commands through um, to remote servers. Um, John, have you taken a look at this? Um, yeah, briefly, I looked at the article. Um, I don't think I actually uh, looked at it, but I mean, it's very, it's very interesting. And again, it's one of those things that uh, you know you miss though when you're, you know, you're kind of troubleshooting, uh, especially SIP trunks. That you know, yeah, I can tell that, but it could be more than that, right? So I think it's a, it's a really nice. He's been just a, you know, as a, as another plug. He's been grinding out a lot of good stuff lately. So uh, yeah, I this, this one supports UDP and TCP and TLS right. and SIP trunks and and everything. So you know, if you're if you're troubleshooting. Uh, some connectivity problems, or you know, in like our case where you're a consultant and you're going in and, and deploying things and just want to make sure everything's listening everywhere where it should be, um, you know, this is a great little tool. So we'll we'll definitely get a uh, a link to uh, Graham's tool up on the summary page. Yeah, yeah I, I sometimes try to try to use uh, port query uh, to do this, but uh, it's not that easy to use. And uh, if you have a a tool here that can do actual actual zip packets. It's uh, going to be awesome. Yeah, and just as, but you know, uh, uh, if you go to the page and look for this, uh, the, the thing, see really something in June. Uh, send zip options. That's I've I've used that for some testing. That's really handy when you have like the, you know the Sonus engineers going, hey, I'm not getting options from you. You know, so it's like, like hold on a second. How about now? <laughs> right. <laughs> another, another another handy tool he, he whipped up. Yeah, very cool. Um, another cool tool is um, uh, one done by uh, Zachary Lober where you can verify link QoS settings with a script that he wrote, um, you know, PowerShell script again, and it goes out and verifies all the QoS settings in effect uh, for an endpoint, um, you know, including, you know, non, uh, non-Windows-based uh, endpoint or uh, 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 policies and things like that. So um, definitely if you're implementing QoS and want to make sure that um, uh, things are working as they should be, um, you know, sometimes that can be a little difficult unless you, you know, you're really rolling up your sleeves and diving in. And uh, and Zachary's uh, uh, Link QoS settings script uh, really helps out with that. So, so check that out. Yeah, and you know, thanks for posting. I totally missed that. And and a couple other things he posted, I, I retweeted, I put those on my blog this morning. Um, the good, the good stuff. I hadn't. I don't know if I even heard about this guy. So I'm glad you posted that because I totally missed it. All right, switching gears, getting back on track. Uh, Michael, uh, you have a new um, white paper: content switching with Exchange and link-related workloads. Um, on the Kemp site, uh, tell us about that and why we should read it. Well, um, it's not that new. Uh, I just found out this week that it was published a few weeks back. Um, so I'm just a little bit late by pointing it out that it's out there. But remember, it, it was a few episodes back that we talked about um, 
content switching and publishing workloads uh, through uh, Kemp, um, and I've uh, written a, flow, a few articles about it on my um, on my personal blog. And then uh, Bargov reached out to me, and he said, "Well, hey, why don't we, you know, try and use those uh, articles as a basis for a white paper?" And that's when I, uh, you know, started writing this white paper for um, for Kemp because apparently there's a lot of questions about it on on how to properly configure the uh, load balancers um, to publish, uh, you know. Typically, exchange workloads, as I am an exchange guy, but as Stolle pointed out earlier this week, there's uh, you know a lot of questions too uh, for for links. So I'm now uh, looking into creating maybe the same thing, but add some more um, link examples to it. So, if you're looking for for any you know advice or any information on how to configure a camp load balancer um, to use a single external IP address with multiple services running behind it, then that's the go-to white paper I would recommend you to start with. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, I deployed Camp uh, recently, and uh, that wasn't uh, good uh, explained in in the original um, deployment documentation from Camp. So I found your old blog posts and and used them, and they uh, they worked really well. So uh, this is really uh, really good stuff. Yeah, I I can concur. I've I've done the, the similar thing with Exchange and and Link with a Camp load balancer with uh, constant switching just to. Uh, limited the amount of uh, external IPs, and it, uh, with, with some help from Michael, um, finally got it working because the the, the uh, uh, documentation that was present at the time wasn't really explaining uh, all the nooks and crannies of of the content switching, and uh, I've, I've browsed in your uh, in the in its white paper, and it uh, explains it uh, quite well, so. Uh, but uh, the, there, especially when you combine exchange with link, there are still some gotchas that uh, that you probably uh, will mention in the uh, upcoming update. I hope. Uh, that's you know that's the idea. Um, we started off doing this for exchange, but immediately as as I started tweeting it out, um, Stolly, I think you were the first one to react quite quickly, uh, pointing out like, hey. Um, these are something like this for Link too, so um, I'm pretty sure that will follow pretty yep. soon. Yeah, yeah, you need to add all the, the all the simple URLs and uh, all the other cool stuff. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, and especially the the, the uh, out discover a, a virtual path. That's that's especially when you combine Exchange and Link, then you have to uh, watch out how how the order of of rules are are, are situated and stuff like that. So. And Fun. Michael, you uh, you mentioned uh, Bargov at uh, Kemp. We have reached out to him, and we we've been trying to get him on, but he his schedule is uh, uh, horrible uh, when it compares when it tries to meet up with ours. So we're still trying to get Bargov on, and of course he's at Kemp, and Kemp um, has been a sponsor of ours in the past, and they've they've been real good. So he's um, I've seen Bargov speak at some of the user groups, and he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to load balancing, and, and we're looking forward to having him on soon. He's a wealth of knowledge about indeed. everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He told me how to play roulette in, in Vegas for the conference. So. <laughs> and isn't he like a dual MCM, link and exchange? Yeah. He, he's one of the few ones, isn't he? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I also heard that Kemp is uh, working on a uh, security documentation for reverse proxies, uh, with uh, Link MMP Thomas Poet as well, so I'm really looking forward to that, and we need to talk about it when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, we get a lot of people asking about what do we do now, you know, that TMG is gone. So, 
Yeah, and I actually had a, uh, for the first time in a couple of years, a uh, security discussion about reverse proxies. So I was totally blank on that since I haven't talked about uh, reverse proxies uh, in the last five years since TMG and and uh, the the previous server was uh, always the go to reverse proxy. Yeah. Yep. So so now uh, they asked, what do you expect from reverse proxy? And I said. Yeah, you need to set it up like a reverse proxy. <laughs> what else is there to do? Yeah, it's just so, port redirection. What, what about so reverse right. proxy? Don't you understand? <laughs> yeah, right. Go look it up. Uh, and, so and I it's, sent him the wiki. <laughs> and it's not even really all that all that complicated when it comes to link. I mean, you could do so much more stuff with reverse proxies than what's required in link. I mean, it's it's just port redirection. That's really all that's happening. So, but uh, good stuff. Okay, switching gears. Um, Andrew, you went and took uh, this crazy course for the 338 exam, which I am now diligently studying for. Um, tell us about your experience. Basically, the course, um, I was on the course for a whole week. Um, it was basically run by Rob Edwards, which I believe knows a few of you guys. It's an intense course, let's put it that way. Um, it's basically 80% labs with 20% theory, and how they train it delivers the course is different to other courses that I've attended. So basically the trainer's only there to give the lectures. So basically if you run into an issue within the Link Lab, then you have to resolve it yourself or basically with the people around you. So you basically have to start asking questions, working out what's going on with the whole... Going on from that, I mean, it's broken down into 10 sections, um, going from obviously conferencing to uh, client authentication, also looking at um, SharePoint and Exchange, which them two parts kind of fell asleep at. <laughs> Going on from that, um, it is generally a good course. I mean, I would recommend it to other people. I mean, on the course, there's a few listeners to the UC Architects podcast. Um, there is a couple of prerequisites. You must have done 336 and 337 before you can do the 74-338 course, which is obviously the Link Deep Dive oh, course. Oh, 74? Yeah. Or is it a se- okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Link 2013 uh, depth support engineer. It's yeah. all about support. And obviously myself, because I've come, come from a support background, there was a lot of things there that I already knew. So in the actual labs, it was like, I know exactly where to go to resolve that issue. But in the answer books, he wants you to basically go through the whole process of going from front to back or back to front to make sure you've got everything correct before you can move on to the next labs. Because if you don't complete one part, then obviously other parts won't work later in the lab. So they really push you to do that. I mean, it was basically 10-hour days as well. So we started at 8 a.m. in the morning and finished till 6 p.m. Did you take the test yet? I haven't taken the test yet, no. Okay. So that's, uh, to me, that sounds like a slimmed-down version of the Masters. Yeah, right. But there's no accreditation. I mean, it doesn't give you, like, a... You know, NCSE service communications. Well, anything, right? the the problem there is that it is now a requirement, um, I believe, um, for some of your partner status stuff. Right. Is this replaced be, the the Leon one? Be during the fall or something. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a coming it's a coming requirement, um, and and I can I can say I've probably talked to ten people who've taken the test, and I only know one person who's passed. Oh, great. There goes my summer thing. <laughs> I mean, the ones yeah. that want to attend me on the course, uh, Matthias, who actually passed the exam, but also wants to do the course as well, just to fill in the gaps. So, Who's giving the courses, Microsoft? Uh, global Knowledge. Oh, okay. So, oh. so here's my, my problem with this. Um, you know, everyone tells tell this, this is a, you know, a very tough course to, to pass or, or the, to pass the exam for, which is great, but for how long? I mean... I'm pretty sure that once it's out there um, and people can go and get it, 
you could get a, a brain dump in no time. Oh, so, they're already out there. I'm I mean, oh, man, that's, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, man. that's horrible, you know, because it, it seems like a very good thing to do. And it's great that you have to pass an exam for it, but what is it worth at a, a dem other than Microsoft telling you that you need that certificate for your partnership status? Because the problem that you have now is you've got, you know, beautifully people that go to the course, pass the course, put effort in it, and become really good at it. And you'll have, you know, plenty of companies that will just, you know, pick a random guy from from whoever has nothing to do at that point in time, tell them, hey, here is a brain dump, study the brain dump, and go take the exam so that we can keep our partner status. That's absolute Crap, sorry. Yeah. I, I just disagree with Microsoft the way they were doing these things. And it, yeah, I mean, they haven't learned anything, have they? Well, don't get There's us started on the whole there, MCM huh? thing. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 you know, it's, it's about a year ago, so it's, it's boiling up with me again right now. now um, <laughs> I've had that part of my brain removed. I no longer even think of it. <laughs> so, so you had a second lobotomy? <laughs> right. um, no, I mean, Looking at at, um, at uh, Andrew's blog post about it, it really looked like good content, a good thing. I mean, it's knowledge that I think would make someone a, very, a better uh, engineer, support guy, uh, consultant, whatever, on a technical level, which is great. But, uh, uh, I mean, the, the way they handle it and then, you know, push it in the same format as before, it's just going to end up being like any other exam um, with micro at Microsoft at the time, so it loses a little bit of its value, and it's a pity. It's it's especially that. But. I mean, I definitely advise to go on the course. It's good to fill in the gaps from a support perspective. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going through uh, when we were getting ready for the podcast and looking at some of the dumb questions. I, mean, I, I like some of the questions that they're doing. It's very there's a lot of stuff on on full failover. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going way past what 337 did, from what I can see. You know, from the 10, which was a horrible demo. exam. Oh, God. Yeah, don't remind me. But, I mean, again, hopefully it's more like that and not like, okay, online stuff, which, you know, sorry, I really didn't care about how you know, much. No, and, and uh, lots of the topics here are not well documented either, so you actually need to, to go on, look for work with yeah, it was, in order to I was kind of thinking that too myself, right? Because actually one of the questions I actually had to do, like there's a, there's a question on um, when you're failing over what to do with the edge. And like you know the you know the question was like what command are you to run? I'm like I actually had to write that up for a, for a client like the steps of failover, including the edge piece because I don't you know some of the, the write ups are never covered uh, moving the, the edge before you move CMS. So um, I don't like some of the questions are on there. <laughs> some of these are the real, real questions that are on the test, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. But obviously on my blog post as well, I've posted a link to all the tools that are required for a deep support engineer, so you can go and grab them as well. Oh really? Yes. Excellent. It so was a good uh, blog. I think I need, to, need maybe to attend the class myself and uh, learn some troubleshooting uh, techniques. How much is the well, course going to be uh, doing uh, troubleshooting? Well, Andrew, you'll have to take the exam and tell us, you know, how how much the uh, class was uh, beneficial to passing that test. No worries. I'll let you know. Okay. Next up, uh, Stale, you wanted to do this uh, using Link Like a Link Pro. Tell us what's that about, and what do you what have you got for us? Yeah, so I started this uh, segment using a link like a Link Pro, um, and it's more like tips and tricks for your you Link Pros out there. And the tips are typically um, not applicable to a big rollout in the organization, but for you guys out there that that wants to do more with Link and. Um, 
Um, the tips are typically uh, applicable to the desktop client. Um, some of them may be community developed, um, and they also may have requirements outside just running the link client, like installing the SDK or configuring your registry settings and stuff like that, and use PowerShell in order to, to configure this. And uh, today's tip is about uh, pictures in Link. And uh, I think it's an important topic because uh, looking good in Link uh, helps you look more professional and you see the people you are talking to and get to know them, especially within a big dispersed organization where you don't know half the people working there and it's a good way to get to know uh, each other. And uh, one of my favorite integrations with Exchange 2013 is, of course, um, the high-resolution photo integration, where you are able to upload uh, a photo into Exchange, uh, which is in um, a higher resolution than you, uh, what you get in uh, the thumbnail attribute in Active Directory. Uh, and um, but but the problem with this in Link 2013 is that uh, that picture isn't shared to federated contacts, right? So um, then uh, when you are in, in federated meetings or if you are collaborating with a lot of federated and external contacts, uh, you just will have this uh, mystery man uh, picture. Or uh, if you have connected uh, your CPRI, your primary email address, hopefully, uh, to LinkedIn, and the federated user have uh, installed and and are running the um, office uh, social connector, uh, then um, uh, they may see a, uh, a small picture of you, a quite garbled uh, output. I think the resolution is 48 by 48. So this pro tip here is about using um, uh, a picture from a website which is now an option in, in Link 2013 and it also was an option in Link 2010. But uh, for some time there, I think it was about a year or two, it wasn't an option in, in Link 2013. So um, uh, now you have uh, the ability to use a web-based photo and the resolution of that photo is 200 uh, by 200 pixels. And it's hard-coded to 200, so if you upload a picture to a website, your blog, or if your company have a website with all the pictures, um, then you can use those. And uh, you, you get to look better in, in federated um, um, collaboration scenarios. Uh, and for me as a consultant, uh, I think uh, that's a good thing, uh, especially if you are talking to new customers or new partners or uh, you, you are talking to people you don't know. It's, it's good uh, to be able to, to show your picture. And by using this 200 by 200 uh, picture, it's it's uh, almost as if uh, ha having the high resolution photo uh, applied to your um, um, link. So um, that's the pro tip today. I, I blogged about it, how you can do it, and um, and you can you need to um, add a uh, policy entry into a client policy on an on-premise link server. So this is only possible, I think, in um, uh, link on-premise uh, and not in link online uh, and um, uh, to be able to do this. So um, what do you guys use? Uh, what do you guys use in your organizations? I think uh, internally at Modality, I think everybody just publishes a photo externally and... Uh 
Yeah, I think yeah. A lot, I see a lot of people doing that, if, 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 especially if they're using Federation heavily. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most bigger. But yeah, I guess I consulting companies that would make sense. But most bigger organizations just publish them. And I see people, you know, a lot of companies use their badge photos from you know security, and then they get put in AD, and and that's you know the default picture, which are, again aren't always the best pictures. That's one problem. Right. And uh, yeah, the the thumbnail photo is is not that good either, especially in in Link 2013 timeframe where the picture gets blown up quite uh, big. Uh, so, but this is more like I, I don't see this scaling much, though. Uh, it's more like uh, a tip for for those that want to do more with Link, um, and um, there's lots of cool stuff that can be done. Cool, very cool. Well, we'll uh, we'll post that information online as well. And uh, last up for this episode, a bunch of events, um, lots of user group meetings this month. So let me run down through the list. The Link Users Group, of course, that's uh, Kevin Peters and and Adam and, and all those guys, uh, uh, they're juggernaut of user groups. I think they have like uh, 15 of them now. Um, they're having their quarterly meetings throughout the U.S. So the list is July 15th in Cincinnati, the 16th in L.A., the 22nd in Philadelphia, the 24th in Chicago, San Francisco on the 24th as well. Uh, Detroit, or more correctly, Southfield, Michigan, on the 29th. Uh, Nashville, the same day, the 29th, as well as uh, Silicon Valley, where Alex Lewis is. Um, and the 31st, I think, uh, for Milwaukee. So that's uh, all the Link Users groups there. And then also, um, Steve Goodman and uh, Michael will be uh, attending the UC Birmingham user groups on August 13th, and they will be uh, presenting on um, approaches for multi-forest exchange hybrid deployments. There's a mouthful. And then, uh, Stali, you had something for Norwegian Link Day? Yeah, so um, we are doing this Norwegian Link Day in uh, Norway, the 14th of October. And um, Norwegian Link Day is not like Link Conference, but it's a bigger event where we have... Right now we have... Um, uh, 25 vendors in an expo area. We have four tracks, and uh, I also believe we, we can get a lot of Link MVPs come and talk about uh, Link uh, core services as well as we, we want to showcase the ecosystem around Link. So we do have a lot of um, third-party tools being demoed at the uh, event. And um, yeah, it's going to be fun. Check it out at uh, linkday.no. And... Um, uh, and the language in the seminar will be uh, primarily Norwegian, but uh, there should be expected some English talks in there as well. So check it out if you are in Norway and want to do more with Link. Great. Great. Look forward to that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll be at the Chicago one if anyone wants to you know, meet the famous John Cook. <laughs> or drink with me anyway. <laughs> if you want to show John your latest Android phone, you that's to buy the place to go. Show up. Um, and that pretty much does it for this episode. I want to thank Tony Redman. Tony, thanks for uh, being a good sport and coming on today. Yes, thank you so much. No worries. No worries. No worries. We'll have you, we'll have you on again. Oh, the joy. <laughs> In another forty, in another can't forty wait. episodes, in another forty episodes. Oh, I can't wait! I'm trembling here with anticipation. <laughs> well, thanks for being on, and thanks to uh, Andrew, who's going to do the editing for this episode. Uh, hopefully, it's not a lot of work for you there, Andrew. Um, 
This UC Architects episode is sponsored by Instant Technologies, expert in enterprise click-to-chat and e-discovery solutions. Instant Technology announces Instant Chime for Microsoft Link. Transform your service desk with Chime and move your support operations from endangered species to wise enterprise. Start your Chime trial at www.adchime.com and join the conversation on, on Twitter at Team Instant. So check them out. Um, And finally, before we go, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Well, duh. Uh, Visit our website today at uh, theucarchitects.com. Follow us on Twitter at theucarchitects. See our page on Facebook at facebook.com slash theucarchitects. We have a group on LinkedIn where we're asking lots of questions, taking some survey information, and you can post your questions that we can discuss online. Um, If you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you can find it in the iTunes store, the Zoom Marketplace, uh, our Windows phone podcast app, uh, soon our iOS app, and uh, RSS feed, as well as directly on uh, the website itself. So we'll see you back for the next, uh, next episode with Steve Hosting. Thank you.